today of the Adventures in DevOps podcast. And today is super exciting because if you are a frequent listener of the show, you know that Jonathan and Jillian both have moved on to higher callings. And, um, you know, at this point, I've just got to say that it can't be me. I mean, like I'm the only host that's that's here that's stood the test of time, but surely it's not me. It must be them and not me. But we'll find out because today I have a new co-host. I have Warren Parad. You might remember him from episode 147 when we were talking about open source software. He's the CTO of Authorus, and he is now the new co-host joining me on the podcast. Warren, welcome. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I, I'm surprised you remembered the, the number because uh, I for sure didn't. I'm not going to lie. I totally looked it up before the show started. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually interesting that you that, that one was uh, on open source because I actually just came back from FOSDEM uh, in, in Brussels. And um, there's a lot of parallels there, I felt like. It's like the largest open source conference in the world. Yeah, how was that? That seemed like it'd be a cool show to go to. You know, I think it definitely it definitely cemented a lot of the stereotypes that you can imagine about both like the open source <laughs> community. Uh, you know, I go to a lot of conferences because I I speak at them, um, and so like I try to pick the ones that I feel like I can have the most impact on, either sharing my experiences or uh, whatever have you, given my 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 role. So he said, I'm like, I'm the CT of Authoris, um, security application specialist, really. So anything that falls in that space. Uh, actually, it was really surprising when I was there because there wasn't a security track. Uh, and it's the first year they even had anything related to APIs. Uh, so like my room was like totally packed with people. Uh, but it really goes to show you that either it's still a relatively new area and sometimes I forget that. For sure, yeah. I, I think... That's pretty much a rule for our industry as a whole is it is new. You know, if you consider it to even like airplanes or trains or boats, like we're just getting started here. And I, I, when I talk with a lot of people who are just starting their careers, you know, they feel like, oh, it's too late. You know, I've missed the boat. And, and granted, there is a lot to learn, um, but it's, it's definitely not too late. And one of the things I try to emphasize with that is like when I started my career in the nineties, um, you know, we just didn't know anything and we've learned a lot since then. And a lot of that is like foundational knowledge for someone entering the career. So I kind of consider at this stage in my life, one of my roles is to relay that information, you know, and make sure that people just starting their career, don't have to spend 30 years learning the things that I've learned over the 30 years that I'm going to distill it, digest it, relay it to them and let them build on top of what I've learned. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. I, I think the numbers rolled up for me and I'm like, oh, wait, like I remember when I started applying for positions uh, and seeing high numbers of years of expectations for experience, like even like five or seven, I'm like, am I going to get there at some point? Probably Maybe. not. And now like I'm way past that number. And I'm like, oh, like I'm supposed to know things. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, I think it's a good reminder though, too, because uh, there's this bias, even especially in our industry where we think that I think it's experts everywhere believe that the common person knows way more about the the subject and even within software there's so many different disciplines that i'm often talking to people about things that i think a majority of people know already and they're just like wait i don't i don't i have no idea what you're talking about I'm like all oh, right that's i i totally <laughs> maybe is that surprising yeah no i think that's been a shift in the decades that i've been doing this too like whenever i first started if you said, I don't know about that technology or I don't know how to do that, it was um, 
it was a bad thing to say. And it could be mm. detrimental to say you were expected to know everything. And, and we've kind of broken that down over the years where it's okay to say, I don't know. And it, and it has to be the vast number of things that we cover. Like you're not going to know everything. Yeah. I think coming like actually acknowledging that imposter syndrome is a thing uh, yeah. and that it's okay to have uh, has, has been a huge shift. That's only just happened recently. Like even in the history of, of software engineering. I mean, I think it's permeated to other knowledge work related uh, paths that they're, they're really, as you pointed out, there's just way too many things that you could ever know. Um, right. I've so been, go ahead. been stuck. Because uh, yeah. like I keep wanting to get into more into AI and I feel like, uh, you know, that's its, own, that's its own can of worms. But every time I look, I'm like, okay, but if I learn something there now, it will just totally be different in five minutes. Uh, so maybe right. I, should hold, I should hold off and just not try to get down that path. Right. Let it simmer down for a few years, <laughs> then check it out. Yeah, right. And, and that's the other thing too. Like some of these things, like if you invest time and effort into them, and then a couple years from now, it's not even a thing. Like, mm. dang, there's three years of my life I'm never getting back. Well, you know, it totally pays off because I feel like my experience in software engineering uh, is filled with situations that I definitely regret. Uh, but they all turn into great stories and experiences, I feel like, uh, whereas, and that you can pull forward in some way. I mean, I had to be careful about that, like not getting, not staying somewhere where I feel like I've learned everything there is to learn and there's no where for me to go. And it's not necessarily get promoted or move up, just like, am I using technology or skills that I'm now trying to focus on or grow? For sure. Yeah. So on that note, how did you actually get started in this field? Uh, you know, I don't know if I should go forward or backwards here. Uh, so maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe at least I'll put the goalpost. Uh, so I'm the CTO of a co company that does authentication and authorization as an API. Uh, what does that even mean? I feel like those words are complicated uh, yeah. that aren't immediately straightforward. So like user identity and access control, specifically for businesses with complicated user roles and resources, multi-tenancy, anything in that domain. Uh, so it's been a long journey for me to get there. Uh, I moved a around in a lot of different industries and locations. So I actually didn't even go to school for software engineering. I went for... Uh, my undergraduate degree in engineering is electrical and computer. And that means I wanted to build spy satellites. Uh, but that actually didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was my, you know, it was that or go work for NASA or the equivalent. And uh, interestingly enough, I, you know, sort of got a, a, an experience of doing that later. But when I graduated, I couldn't find a good job. And by good, I mean, like the year before I graduated, there was a huge crunch, sort of similar to what's happening now uh, in technology. Uh, so I wasn't, I wasn't, <laughs> I didn't feel very optimistic about my opportunities when leaving. Uh, and so like, I didn't get that many. And I ended up in health, healthcare IT in the middle of nowhere in the United States. And let's just say my hobby programming practices of since I was like 14 years old, I think that's about when I started, uh, were more sophisticated than what this company had going as far as like <laughs> software development processes <laughs> and source control, uh, which they didn't have at all. Uh, so that was, you know, quite uh, an initial <laughs> shock for me. Um, and I, I definitely didn't want to stay there very long. Uh, I think what was interesting about that job too is that I didn't have experience in so hard software engineering skills, but I did take a lot of classes that... I think are still valuable for me today. So like, I don't care if someone went to a university when I'm hiring them or not, but there is some background that's super useful, like algorithms and structures and understanding what that is. Like if I say hash map or dictionary, that sort of comes with some expectations. I don't mm -hmm. care if you know how a virtual page file system works because I still can't figure that out for the life of me. <laughs> Yeah, so this again actually wasn't even software. I was doing technical services, which was pretty much doing custom software development for the customers of the company, but not building the product up. And that was actually really working with customers directly, our, our users, to help them understand how the technical product worked. Super complicated, lots of configurability. So much so that customers could put in their own code into the system, which is 
sort of ridiculous that you would go to production and make changes there directly in the operating system level. And like that scared me uh, that anyone would do that. Uh, but that was that was the thing. Uh, so that also wasn't wasn't pure software. And that was great because I feel like I got experience with, okay, what we're doing has an impact to a user somewhere. Like there has to be a reason for doing this. Yeah, and I, I think um, healthcare is one of those interesting places to work in technology because you have like all of these different constraints. You know, you have just like the, the whole world of medicine is huge, but then you have... Mm -hmm it's implemented differently in different regions. And then you have like the legal aspect of it with HIPAA requirements and stuff. One of the jobs I had was, um, it was, a, an, it, this was before the term SRE was yeah. around, but it was kind of an SRE type role where um, we worked directly with the staff in trauma centers. And so mm. whenever they would call us and say, hey, this thing's broken, right. um, they had, somebody in the emergency room on the table yeah. that they couldn't give medical care to because our stuff was broken. And so you were talking with, you know, doctors and nurses, and there were, there were many occasions where you just tell them, Hey, look, just put me on speakerphone, go do what you got to do. And I'll shout if I need anything. And I wish, <laughs> I wish I sort of had that experience. Cause that seems like one of those that, you know, falls in the category of, I'm glad I did it in my past. But it's not my day job anymore. Right. I actually, I actually worked in uh, claims and like uh, billing for, primarily. So I, I got to deal with all the problems of configuration in the system, and right. also how to deal with those contracts with third-party integrations to insurance companies or clearinghouses. That oh yeah, were and not insurance well companies are just a joy to work with at every level, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> this is like after a standards body came together and said, we need things like HL7 to perfectly identify programmatically how to communicate. And then the hospital organizations would go out and sign contracts with these insurance companies that violate the data that's allowed to be put in the programmatic communication and the interface. And their APIs or EDI interfaces, depending on where you're from. And like, that was really a struggle to communicate. We're like, hey, you know, our software doesn't do this because it's against the spec. Like this field, it takes a Boolean, true or false. Uh, and you can't put a three in there. Um, <laughs> right. uh, and part of it was to protect the patients. Like what information should be allowed to be sent to the uh, insurance company uh, that wasn't relevant for paying out whatever diagnostic or surgery was assigned in that claim. So I did remember one time, and this is where I'm glad I'm not, I like never was in the SRE path directly, uh, that one of the data centers that one of the hospitals that I was supporting um, had an incident and their like main systems were all offline, like totally, uh, which, you know, same to your case. And what they had us do was remote into the systems, uh, not using SSH, that would be cool. Uh, but using some other technologies <laughs> that I, I don't want to name and like three different levels. Like we had to first, we got the beeper go off. You had to get on call giant uh, phone room where then you got assigned credentials in order of access. Then you could get in and then SSH to another system and then to another system to even get into production uh, to run a script basically to verify that the database was uh, integrity was still, you know, okay. I didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the big takeaways for me from working at that job was um, just putting things into perspective, you know, especially since I still deal with production systems a lot and incident management, you know, um, after that, my approach is, oh, we've got an outage. Okay. How many people are going to die? Mm -hmm. Zero. Okay. Well, let's just simmer down a notch here then. And, and let's just make conscious focused decisions here because everyone's going to be okay. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Uh, there's, I think this is one of the most frequent advice that I end up giving uh, inexperienced, like new engineers, to the field is really just take a look at that risk profile here of what's going on. Uh, like I need help immediately. I'm like, do you though? I mean, <laughs> your, your production deployment isn't working, but the site is working at this moment and it also doesn't serve critical usage. And also you don't have an ongoing marketing campaign and maybe you have five users. 
Right. <laughs> uh, uh, I think I saw an, an XKCD on this. I don't remember if it was that or someone else. And and the there was like, is this is, is like post like MySQL or Postgres or something? Uh, is my database configuration uh, will it work for having a hundred million concurrent users? And the response is, <laughs> how many current users do you have? Oh, we have five. Oh, yeah. Then yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, because there's a lot of truth to that. It's just like you you don't need that scale uh, at all. I was actually talking to someone today, and and they were doing they were almost exact same question, but they're like, we don't want to use an identity provider that's proven, hardened, or whatever. And I'm like, that's okay. Uh, they're like, oh yeah, it doesn't scale for us. And I'm like, how many users? Like ten thousand users. And I'm like. Uh, okay, you know that's just like such a small number, right? <laughs> it's not even worth. Like, here, I'll, I'll let you borrow my Raspberry Pi. Will that work? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, the thing that scared me is uh, the difference between it being like a commercial application for uh, personal use and one that goes to a business. Because as soon as you bring in businesses, if people are asking these questions, I start to get concerned like, okay, what is the data privacy that you're thinking about? You know, what is your data redundancy or disaster recovery situation? Because if you're worried about spending 10 bucks a month on running your app, I feel like there's a promise here to your customers that's more than just that could go down. And having a backup strategy just is like number one for me if you're in the business space over, you know. Who cares if you lose some music files from your Spotify account? Right. And I think that ties into um, something that is very specific to DevOps, but also applies to other areas of technology too, is like, it's not always just about the technology. Like you have Mm. to understand the business as well and, and understand like what your promise to the customers is and, and how it impacts their life. And even like in, in some cases, you know, you have to understand the financial aspect of it too, because yeah. we built all of this infrastructure and now the finance team doesn't really know what to ask. But if you go to them and say, hey, some of this infrastructure is OpEx and some of it is CapEx. And if you work with us, categorize it correctly, it can result in a, a huge amount of tax savings for the company. And so you get into all of this non-technical aspects of a technical business. I love that you, I love that you brought that up because I I think that understanding even the difference between those two is such a foreign concept to engineering sure. in general. Uh, I, I think we get lots of customers that are like, "Oh, it costs ten thousand bucks a month for your service. That's too much." I'm like, "Let me explain to you, you know, the savings here. Uh, also, you probably have capital expenditures that you're currently." paying in and saving those resources that are depreciating over time versus paying a, a SaaS provider to, to, you know, deliver some of that. Uh, and if I look at their usage and it's like peanuts, like a couple bucks a month, it's like you are literally wasting more time trying to make a decision on which SaaS provider to use for something than you are to pick a random one and paying the cost to transition <laughs> later. Right. It's, re- it's really sad, honestly, how often I have that conversation. Yeah, you have to... You have to know, and I think this just comes from experience of knowing when to like dig into the weeds and when to take a step back and, and see, are, are we even in the right part of the forest here? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because actually, you know, to continue on, continue on my career path story, I worked at a large global manufacturing company that wrote their own software and they actually did chargebacks really well and exposed the cloud costs uh, eventually to the individual team so that they could take ownership over how much they were spending on some things. And, you know, I think that's a great, a great first level, like giving that exposure rather than locking it behind uh, another team or even uh, a different part of the organization, like one quote unquote finance. Uh, Because, you know, that was great to see, oh yeah, you know, if we spin up this infrastructure, it's going to cost us $2,000 more a month. Uh, But then it's great to also hear that other teams are like, well, well, whoops, we just spent 200,000 on this (laughs) other SaaS provider. I think, I think I read it. It was like in the 10 K of like Coinbase or something that they had spent $65 million uh, last year or two years ago on data dog or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually really easy to do with data dog. (laughs) 
I mean, that's always been my concern. Uh, I mean, they're not the product for us, given where like the sort of data that we want to collect and the sensitivity of that data. Uh, but it's also really amazing that there aren't any products that really fit the space for us. I wish someone would come to us and be like, you know, for metric usage, you know, here's a perfect thing. But, you know, we still haven't found that, actually. So we actually, because um, in my full-time job, I'm a staff engineer on the DevOps team for Polygon. Yeah. And we actually just rolled out a product called Cloud Zero mm-hmm. that has been super cool. It does, um, it collects the, it connects to whatever billing APIs for different um, providers that you use, pulls that in, and then gives you insights on it. And it it's really, really insightful. Like the, the very first day, it's like, hey, here's a bunch of um, NAT gateways you're using in AWS. Mm. don't have any traffic. You can save, yeah. you know, $5,000 a month just by turning these off. Or, And it's like daily emails. It's like, hey, over the last 24 hours, the spending on this GCP product or GCP project yeah. went up 125%. And you're like, wow, yeah. that's a jump. And so that's that's been really cool just to manage those, those kinds of things. And it's been very... Um, I'm not trying to plug Cloud Zero or turn this into yeah. a promo or anything. We just had good experience with it because they've just um, they've brought up some stuff that we would have not seen yeah. very easily, and the integration with it was super easy. I mean, I think I think that's the truth. Is like those sort of tools have like significantly evolved recently. I think at the time, which was. Uh, almost eight years ago now we were using like i think it's called cloudinary or something like that and it was it was not it was not particularly good at the time uh but yeah being able to see those trends in not an amateurized cost way was was helpful uh and actually driving alerts and whatnot which at the time aws didn't really support (laughs) aws doesn't really have motivation to support it (laughs) Well, you know, I think that's sort of the sad story of SaaS products is, I mean, really everything in general, uh, that once you find your core customer, if they're not going to pay marginally more money for your same product, even if you make it better in some way. And that's just like the law, like I pretend that doesn't exist. Like I want to happily live the rest of my life believing that if you make it better, uh, people will appreciate that. And (laughs) there's a brand impact for us. Like a very common conversation I have with my CEO is about how well the quality of whatever we're doing uh, before we start going down another path, because I, I think it does really reflect well uh, users bringing in more customers, et cetera, rather than secretly complaining about it behind closed doors. Yeah, I would agree with that because I, you know, you obviously with a good internet-based marketing campaign, you can reach a, a huge audience, but there's something to be said for just delivering a great product and having satisfied customers. And then when they go to their next job, they're like, Hey, I used this before and really liked it. And I think there's, um, it may not have as big of an impact as a, a, a funny marketing campaign or whatever, but I just think there's something professional about that. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I'm not convinced that in the business space that vi- even viral marketing campaigns have any any real value there. Uh, for sure, if we're talking about personal products, like right. yeah, definitely. Uh, but there is a whole there was a whole initiative by the search providers uh, ad ad marketplaces uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, that tried to actually figure out whether or not the traffic that was being sent to your website or your app actually converted for you, um, right? Obviously, that's a big importance. But if it didn't convert, you almost got dinged because you basically lied about your advertisement, right? You know, traffic <laughs> went to you, user didn't get what they wanted. Um, so I think it's, a, I, I think, you know, original, the original version of this is like sex sells. And I think the truth is, well, no, sex just makes people click the link. Uh, but right. after that, then they then they drop off because, you know, it's not actually what they wanted. And so uh, at least for our content that we put in like our knowledge base or our blog, it's like it's got to be super relevant because while there's lots of things that we can say that are really interesting from a technology engineering blog sort of way, those don't really help get customers in the door. Brand, I mean, brand awareness is one thing, right? You know, you mm-hmm. plus your brand all you want. 
but that's not going to really result in uh, direct sales, but it will result in this concept known as, oh, did I forget the name? Um, it's like positive reinforcement. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of along the lines of like, someone has to hear your name five times before they ever recognize your company name. Oh, that's, that's a high number. I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> don't, don't quote me on that number. It's, there's, there's a rule that, uh, that marketing teams use that people have to see, see your ad or whatever, a certain number of times before they start to recognize your company name. But I, I don't remember if the number yeah. is actually five or, or what the value is. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm sure the unfortunate truth is it's more than you'd like it to be. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that's the takeaway there. For sure. So looking back over your career, what are some of the things that you, some of the career development decisions you made that when you look back, you're like, ah, that was just pure brilliance. Uh, well, I don't know if I have an answer to that question. <laughs> or, um, or like, okay, that wasn't completely dumb. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Let's set the bar a little bit lower there. Uh, yeah. Um, I think I made a couple of realizations while I was working on different things. Uh, so one of them was like the first DevOps related thing I had ever done, which was not called DevOps at the time was helping the organization I was in to replace the need of a different organization, which was called release engineering. Mm -hmm. And the third organization that wanted to help us do that told us the solution was Puppet. And and if you don't know what Puppet is, it's a convention-based Ruby set of proprietary packages, uh, really, which is just the most ridiculous thing. Uh, that you install agents on all of your machines to deploy and upgrade the software. Uh, The thing is, is that you pretty much had to do the equivalent of writing your own Terraform provider for your own software in order to deploy it. There wasn't anything common, really, and what was common didn't really work out of the box. And like like you will, uh, I was the only one left on this project by the end uh, from (laughs) three teams that hadn't been swapped out in some way. Like 12 people left it over the time I was trying to get this done. But the the point that I bring this up is that repeatedly it was said, uh, usually by me, uh, oh, if we wanted to do it that way, maybe we shouldn't be using Puppet. Uh, <laughs> and at the time, I was literally, I was so underleveled. I was literally the lowest level that uh, an engineer could have at this company at the time. Uh, which is own sort of travesty, which should teach you something that your ability doesn't really mean anything when it comes to the level that you've been assigned. Um, if I had been a higher level, I would have, and I realized this after the fact, that saying those words to myself or even out loud is an indication that you should do something about it. Uh, and I mean, in this case, I left, I left the company, but uh, <laughs> that's something uh, I, I created this rule. I mean, I call it the rule of three, really. But like, if I hear the same problem in my vicinity three times, then I know that it's on me to solve it, that no one else is going to come up and just magically resolve this issue. And I mean, it's not like a hard and fast rule or anything like that. But realistically, no one else may be privy to it as much, right? Like, I may have three different sources that are all coming to me or talking about it in my vicinity. Uh, so I usually watch out for those things uh, because they they help a lot. So like this was one, I should have realized, you know, after the 10th time I said, maybe we shouldn't be using Puppet, like we should have picked a different one. The sad truth is I think that company still has my, like the, the system that I had helped build there to integrate with Puppet being run by, like out of the three organizations that were set up, to manage this infrastructure, basically. There's like a team of two or three people now that are handling like all three components, and, <laughs> which is just ridiculous, really, when you think about it, because this is the wrong technology, no matter how you look at it. Right. Um, and they don't have the skills to build to even manage the wrappers or abstractions that were built to, to manage this. Uh, and they don't have the experience or understanding or knowledge to do it either. So it's, it's really, it's really un, un, unfair. Um, but the biggest lesson there, I think, is don't use Windows. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Amen. At the, 
Yeah, I mean, so this is a manufacturing company. At the time, uh, there was four manufacturing plants all over the world, and they had a monolith. There was something like 120 Windows services, which amounts to uh, like, it was like 1,100 C-sharp projects that were being built and managed and deployed in a monolithic fashion. So like they had a real need for strategic change of how they were doing deployments, which, uh, and I think this is a good story. If you wanted to make a new service, which like this is still in the days of SOA, like the term microservice didn't even exist yet. Uh, you had to contact this second organization and say, I want a new microservice, uh, except you could only do that. You needed a three-week uh, lead time for them to create the infrastructure for your service. And uh, given when you had to do that uh, and the lead time it would take for you to actually release your new thing, you could only do it once every five weeks. And it was right. one day of the week that you could do this. So literally every once every five weeks, I'm like, oh, there's that. Like, I couldn't believe this when I figured it out. It was like, they have a process and we have a process. And together that eliminates every possible day within a one month <laughs> period, except for this one specific day, uh, because we had code freeze. And you yeah. had and you had to introduce the service and then have a handoff and then other nonsense. I mean, that's why we were going to Puppet in the first place, which was supposed to be the, the revolution. Uh, never really made it to be. Right. It was going to automate everything for you. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, my, uh, the claim to fame there, like the interface I provided for other engineers, which I thought was absolutely fantastic, was a single file that... Uh, could merge in lots of different version changes from individual parts of the monolith changing at any time. And so each line of the file was a, uh, because <laughs> the new organization said that Ivy was the way to go, which is a Java resolution sort of package. I mean, it's not even a package manager. It's a jar dependency manager, <laughs> uh, which is a sort of own atro atrocious thing. Um, this was a HTML file that had service and version as HTML attributes. Uh, and to make it worse with Git, uh, every other line was a comment that said, do not remove this comment because, <laughs> <laughs> because if you're not aware of this, when you make a change in Git, if there is no change on the line above or below, then you can merge very easily. But if there is a change on the preceding or following line, then there's gonna be a merge conflict. So unnecessary line. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there was a comment between each one of these that said, you know, do not remove this. Uh, <laughs> but I thought this was a great interface. Uh, and for sure, you know, I would never, never do it that way ever again. Uh, but it was the right thing at the time. For sure, yeah. And that's one of those things where like you, um, you know, it, it's not the, the permanent solution, but it's a foundational step in building a permanent solution. I mean, I wish someone had said those wise words to me at that moment, because it was certainly the belief that I had that this would be the only thing that was ever necessary for the rest of the life of this company. I mean, I guess the fact it's still running is some truth in there. Right. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I think that is um, a, a good point worth elaborating is like everything we do is, you know, without trying to sound like philosophical, everything we do is temporary, but just meaning that technology continues to uh, grow every day. And so whatever we do today is really just a stepping stone to whatever is, is beyond that. And if we just like do like a really high level history lesson, you know, we had um, servers in closets at the office and then we had data centers where we would go rack our servers. And then we figured out how to run virtual machines on the servers. And then, we got, um, you know, cloud providers like AWS, where you could run virtual machines there and then containers. And, and so like all of those were just building on top of the lessons learned from the, yeah. the previous decisions. I mean, I think that's an interesting point. I, I think it was like uh, not too long ago, I was reading a paper that suggested the persistent media storage that we had over time was becoming more ephemeral. And like the replacement speed of things like the, the time between say cassettes and I don't know what else, CDs and then VHS tapes and uh, DVDs to Blu-ray to, you know, USB sticks, flash drive um, was getting shorter over time. Uh, and 
it's interesting. Like, are, are, is our technology that we're building now more ephemeral, transient than what we had in the past? And I think what really missed out in this article was thinking about the lack of stability, of vol- volatility of the previous generation. I mean, the I'm going to get this wrong. The U.S. launched deep space uh, probe that contains the gold DVDs with recorded. Is that Voyager? Is it Voyager? You know, I don't want to. I I could believe it's called Voyager. Uh, You know, I am not. I am not the expert in name recognition here. Uh, But yeah, right. Like we we put it on gold discs. Right. Would we still like? I mean. I have no idea. Is that better than than you know uh, some other less ephemeral flash system that we have now? Like, would we still use that same strategy? I mean, probably not. I'm sure someone dream up it's like some sort of antimony composite or or otherwise. But it's still like, is it metal with like physical embeddings in it? I don't know. Uh, so I thought this was interesting. I would just duct tape a USB stick onto the satellite. <laughs> I mean, I think the realistic answer is like you just put. 50 USB sticks in the satellite right. <laughs> like as long as like one of them needs to survive. But then you like, you figure out like Hoffman coding and error correction. And so like, it's okay if like half of each one of them survives because you can put the data back together. Just, I would just load them all with a, a multi petabyte zip file bomb just for laughs. <laughs> like some aliens find it and it just blows up their computers. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like running commands is always weird, I guess. Right. Because you have to know what the language is in order to even execute that thing. Otherwise, it's just you know nonsensical. <laughs> but I think that that's really that's really the the Rick roll, right? Like just right. Put, <laughs> just put literal nonsense on the disk <laughs> and send that out. You know, I think that's oh, real telling so of a funny. society. Yeah. <laughs> I remember this um, an outage I was on many years ago, and it was storage related where a vast majority of our production systems just had no data. And so we're on this call troubleshooting it for hours. And I get the storage team on the call, you know, and um, they're like, yeah, well, we had some disk failures. And so we swapped out the disks and like, okay, well, that that seems reasonable. And how's the, the rebuilding going? Yeah, the rebuild seems to be stuck. Okay. And, and we, talked this out over a course of a couple of hours and found out that nearly every day they would come in and a disc would fail. And so they would swap out the disc. But then after a week or so, it in the 24 hours between the failures, that wasn't enough time to rebuild the disc. But then they would come in and swap out another disc. So after a week or so, they'd swapped out enough disks where in this storage array oh, no. where none of the disks had enough information to do it. So they lost everything. Wow. I mean, I, wow, that's, you know, and then you go back to, um, okay, well let's, let's restore from tape. When's the last time you verified your tape um, backups Yeah, and you get crickets like, all right. Well, uh, we're going cowboy mode. <laughs> I mean, it's like this is like one on one running fire drills on your disaster recovery process. Like, you yeah, know, forget verification. Like, did you even did, like you literally need to load the tape in, load the data, and be like, yeah, we're switching over to it for real. Uh, otherwise, you might as well not have it. Yeah, and I think that's in my experience, that's been a hard thing to prioritize. You know, you just yeah. essentially have to say. Look, this is what we're doing. You may not like it, but there will be a day in our future where you are happy that we spent this time because you learned so much in trying to do that. And and you recognize all of the things that you thought you had covered that you don't have covered. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think that's one of the areas that's really undersold by the cloud. Like so often I used to do before my current thing, I was doing some fractional engineering, um, CTO advising consulting, and the, it's too expensive for us to move to the cloud because we looked at our current infrastructure that was on some on-prem data center or delegated. And we just calculated the exact number that it would be if we tried to run those exact things, uh, in AWS. 
Right. And the ridiculous part is like, they're not accounting for the actual value add of not having your tape backups, <laughs> you know, rate array failure uh, issues, because that it, like, if you care about that, and you probably should actually care about that, uh, it's non-trivial to have that working correctly. For sure. Yeah, that was um, whenever I got out of high school, I joined the Navy and became a nuclear engineer. And one of the things that they did there was they just really drilled home the whole disaster recovery thing. You know, you would be operating the power plant at, at 2 a.m. And, um, you know, some master chief who was up and couldn't sleep, he'd go walk down into the power plant and just turn something off just to watch everyone respond, you know, and it, it really reinforced the disaster recovery drills so that whenever something did happen unintentionally, just those skills were, were just muscle memory at that point. Yeah. I mean, that really also seems like an exercise in uh, root cause analysis, right? Because right. You have to, I mean, it's, which is not practiced enough realistically. I, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, I don't know. I think there's a lot of companies out there that, that talk about postmortems and whatnot, but having been in quite a few in my day, I don't usually see them run in a way that actually has meaningful outcome there, like actually uh, resulting in better processes or practices in general. Uh, I think the number one thing that comes out is, well, we should have better tests, right? We should have <laughs> more, more, more tests. That's, that's the solution. More tests. Uh, and that's usually what happened, more tests, uh, usually by adding some sort of rule to your uh, CICD platform that ensured that your code coverage was at above 80%, which is always just great whenever you delete code and it goes down uh, because, of course, you deleted code with <laughs> tests on it uh, because that's usually the code that's tested, the most worthless, not necessary. Uh, so, <laughs> right. And I'm just like, I don't, like I have stopped working, uh, con contributing to certain open source pro uh, projects when that happens. I'm just like, I don't know what to do here. Like, I don't know enough about this service or SDK library to add tests somewhere else. Uh, because obviously they're not there for a reason. It was deemed too difficult to add them. And now you're right. asking someone who doesn't know what's going on here <laughs> to fix a bug by deleting code and you can't, you can't do it. Yeah, for sure. And, and every test carries an equal amount of technical debt with it because yeah. the test has to be, um, it has to be actively maintained and mm. evaluated. Like, is this test still testing the right thing? And when it fails, did it fail for the right reasons? Yeah. Yeah, no, for, for sure. For sure. And I think there's a whole, there's a whole uh, extra hours of uh, content here that may not be directly related to DevOps that uh, <laughs> I could go on with. Uh, I, I mean, I worked with a lot of originally QA, but eventually QE and just software engineering teams um, trying to turn it all into the DevOps mindset uh, because that that was a new term, I guess, during my my tenure at different companies and uh, not one that was always so practiced readily. For sure. So. What were some of the things in your career, if for someone who's who's just getting started or or partway through their career, what were some of the things that you did that didn't seem to have any value or were perhaps negative to your career? Oh, uh, for sure. The one, my favorite one is telling other people how their solution won't work. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, my favorite, I thought, you know, I was doing the right thing early on. Uh, hey, there's this thing that doesn't work. I mean, I, not so long ago, I actually did a presentation about how the human psychology uh, doesn't respond to negative deterrence or, or even really uh, any sort of constructive feedback very effectively. I mean, there's a whole psychological safety aspect and desire to change, uh, of which most people you know, are, don't fit there. Most people care more about being told that they're right or they're doing a good job, uh, which says a lot for positive reinforcement, uh, that you can get people to do the right thing, to be motivated, even if you congratulate them, if you tell them how they're doing a good job, give them rewards, just don't put this, the carrot in front of them, uh, too often or explicitly because it will, it can derail where people get personal satisfaction and motivation from. 
Uh, but it, it helps way more than than anything else. Uh, like, I think there's this common misconception that's widely uh, acknowledged that uh, performance improvement plans work in some way. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, it's a great example, right? You know, hey, we're going to fire you if you don't get your act together. Never really fixed anyone's career. <laughs> Statistically, it did help, right? You know, those were the words that someone needed to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, that was a big one. I think... Another one for me, and I was lucky that I had a couple of mentors that really shared this uh, with me specifically, is that it doesn't matter how good of a job you do. Uh, realistically, no one cares. Uh, they, they care about the outcomes that are important for them. Uh, and so figuring out what actually is important for them, and, I, and it's not like some them, which is some vacuous amorphous blob somewhere it's you know put point your finger at whoever is responsible for giving you a promotion uh or uh who i mean realistically whoever cares about your future development which you should know who that is and how they're going to help you get to right. the next level and ask what's important for them uh today right now in the future and that's the answer like everything else totally irrelevant uh, I mean, do it, do what makes you happy, right? Like you shouldn't go to your job and be unhappy. So, you know, find a way to work that in, but don't for one moment believe that doing a good job can, and this was like some lie that I had told myself. And I remember thinking it so many times, I know there are these things called politics. I'm not going to get involved. All I care about, like I will get promoted by doing the best work I possibly can. And I just stopped using the word politics because it doesn't like it doesn't really land. It didn't land for me. It doesn't. I don't think it lands for other people. Uh, really, just think about what you want and then draw the steps to how to make that happen, which are usually convince someone else that you did a good job. And yeah. that just involves a conversation. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, um, a quote and I can't remember it exactly, but someone said, um, just because you choose not to play in politics doesn't mean it's not a political game. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think for me, there was the, like this way you still twist it for yourself where like, okay, there is still a game, but I'm going to try to get around it in some way. And yeah. I, I, I think, I think sometimes uh, assigning those labels really hurts. Like another one, I think really wasn't great for me in my career was people calling i mean i don't know if you can believe this but uh apparently early in my career i lacked what are called soft skills <laughs> you know i think that goes along with telling people that they're wrong you know their solution won't work and then also be like i'm very to the point and very blatant about it so you know you couple those things together and sometimes people's feelings got hurt uh which of course was never my intention which is totally different than all those people that do it with this sort of negative or malicious um, connotation to it. Like it wasn't about you. It was about like literally the solution doesn't work. Um, I think for me, what really helped is stop calling them soft skills, stop calling it politics uh, and focus on what it really means, which is you can work way more collaboratively with other people if they like working with you. Right. Uh, and when you phrase it like that, I feel like it much more helps people who maybe were in my position or similar positions who maybe don't get along by default or different cultures uh, engage with each other to take a step forward than it would if your manager just says, hey, you know, you're missing this manager buzzword that doesn't necessarily connect. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, you mentioned having mentors. I think that's mm -hmm. been really, I've really taken a completely different view of that over the last few years because you know like I grew up in the middle of Texas in the 70s and 80s and can honestly say I don't know that I ever heard the word mentor until I was in my 20s and probably never used it in a sentence till I was in my 30s but now you know it's it's a very common word and I used to think well I guess I didn't have any mentors but then I the more I thought about it the more I realized that I did. I just didn't know what the word was mm. for them. And it wasn't a negotiated arrangement. Yeah. And I think that's still true. You know, like you can have mentors without having a formal conversation. I have this contract here. Would you like to be my mentor? It's very low <laughs> offer and low commitments, easy outs. You know, it, it's not that type of thing. Like a mentor can be anyone who 
who says anything to you, whether it's it's helpful or or hurtful, and it doesn't have to be like um, on your terms. And what I mean by that is like, you know, people have their way of communicating. You know, like I said, I grew up in Texas, and then I went to the Navy, and this was back in a time whenever being in the Navy, your performance was judged on how many bar fights you got into without going to jail. So it was, you know, it was a different environment. So whenever like your master chief told you, Hey, you ever pull that shit again, I'm going to kick your ass. You know, that was a form of mentoring. You know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a nurturing relationship, but it was a mentoring relationship. And so I think that was one of the things I've learned over the years is that mentoring comes in all forms and it's not a predefined negotiated relationship. Yeah, no, that's, I think it's even more effective when it's not like I, I hear of companies trying to start some sort of mentorship program and it's usually like my company is starting a mentorship program. How do I make this be effective? And I'm like, well, why are they starting it? Like you're getting in on the wrong foot almost. And you say that, and I'm, I'm thinking back to my own career and I feel like every job I was in, there was always someone who I gravitated towards and because maybe they were more experienced. But it was never like, hey, can you be my mentor? It was me asking them questions when I when I when something came up, uh, trying to get uh, additional information or understand how they did things. Uh, I think that that definitely helped. Make like going to the right people potentially. That I, I think I would definitely classify as as mentorship. Uh, so you asked about things to do early on in your career. You know, find people that can teach you something and they will absolutely teach you those things. Uh, I hate to quote. Steve Jobs, but he has an example where he called out and asked uh, an executive for feedback uh, to help him. And they're like, yeah, sure. How can I, how can I do that? I think it really is that people will, I think um, uh, Adam Grant says the majority of people are matchers, that most people will reciprocate uh, on, on ask uh, really if they think there's a good uh, engagement for them or uh, could be a good relationship or whatever. And it doesn't have to be like, something static, like put a label on it. Like it's not necessarily required. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So there you go. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, even here, I, I, I before this, uh, I was asking you, you know, personal questions about how you, how you run this, you know, as a good, as a good example, you know, come ready. How do I do this effectively? Uh, just because, you know, I want to do the best job I can. And I'm not a super expert in, in the area. Obviously, I pull skills from what I have in the past, but looking for people that have even just slightly more experience than I do. Yeah, for sure. So what do you think? Should we move on to picks? Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think if I have any, you know, most most important thing that I, you know, ever, ever wanted to <laughs> share here. And I feel like I have so many things, but probably not super relevant uh, at this point. So yeah, let's, let's do the. Uh, That's the great okay. thing about picks is it doesn't have to be relevant at all. It can <laughs> just be like, Oh man, this is so cool. You know? And, <gasps> and, oh. and so we were talking about um, movies before we started recording. Yeah. At, and during that conversation, I learned that, okay, you obviously are a movie guy. You have your own IMDB account where you, save and rank your movies so i know you've got something there uh, he wants he wants to hear what my favorite movie of all time is all-time favorite uh, you know and that's the thing where i'm looking at this list and i have 22 movies rated at at 10 stars uh which is the <laughs> maximum uh, and so i feel like even picking one of these is just such uh such a challenge realistically it's like picking a favorite kid. You can do it as long as the other kids that you have don't hear you. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, and I like them. I think they like them all for different reasons. That's the interesting thing. Like I have ones that are film noir, uh, which I, as a genre I really like. But then I have ones that just, for whatever reason, I liked and had some emotional uh, component to it. Uh, for instance... You know what? This one I think I, I saw recently, so I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I, I think, you know, it's, it's not my top one, but, you know, this is the one I'm going to pull out uh, is Contact. Uh, it's, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's with Jodie Foster. And uh, I think there, the sad part, it's about, about making contact with aliens, maybe. 
Uh, she has sort of a moment in building a machine. It's about the SETI project where they discover, uh, of course, a uh, signal from outer space. Did and she duct tape USB drives to the satellite to contact? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, they, yeah. the, the communication from outer space was uh, a, a machine, uh, instructions for building a machine, which they could build. And, uh, of course, like, you know, she spent her whole life doing this, uh, you know, through adversity, and she doesn't get to be the one to sit in the chair uh, to go contact the aliens initially. I feel like the thing that really hit me is there is, is such a, sort of like a, I don't even know it was intentional, but such a parallel to some of the struggles of diversity in the tech industry, because I feel like she was the perfect pick in every single one of these situations and kept getting gone over for whatever reason. Uh, and like the catharsis at the end of the movie, she actually does get to meet uh, the aliens and then no one believes her, uh, which is just like, <laughs> I mean, I like space movies and I, I like ugh, that one had me just, I felt so bad. Like hearing that, like just seeing that story, uh, which of course is, is not real as far as I know. Uh, like I'm sure there are people out there who said that, you know, they've, they've met aliens, right? <laughs> yeah, there, there have been a few. <laughs> but um, none of the interviews I've seen have the credibility of Jodie Foster. <laughs> Just saying. What's your, what's, what's your pick? So my pick for the week is going to be for the platform con conference and we had um the the guy who created it luca he was on this show i don't remember that episode number but he was on last year talking about platform engineering but platform con is a virtual conference that's five days long coming up here in a few months but it's it's really well done and the reason i'm picking it is because at the end of the conference there's going to be a live q a session where I'm going to interview some of the uh, keynote speakers at the end of the conference. So I'm looking forward to that, looking forward to to talking with those people and seeing if I can uh, uncover some things that didn't get brought up in the conference. And yeah, um, that that seems pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool, it's a cool conference. And, and the best part is it's virtual. So you can just throw it on the background while you're doing whatever it is you're doing and you don't have to try to, argue with your boss to get, you know, to get uh, approval to go to it. But um, check it out at platformcon.com. And you've got a, a few months to get into, to get signed up for that. So plenty of time yeah. to start. I'm going to put it on my list because I'm sure uh, there's something there I'm interested in. Yeah, they cover a, a, a pretty good range of topics, you know, not just, obviously not just DevOps related, but platform related. And, and platform really is, I'm liking the word platform because I think it's more representative of all of the things that we cover versus DevOps. Yeah, um, Yeah, for sure. So that's going to be my pick. So for anyone who's listening to the show and wants to reach out to you about either about authorist or just um, career or just to say, hey, when can you get that will do fired so that we can go on with a decent podcast? How how can they contact you? Uh, I think for sure I accept LinkedIn connections. Uh, if if you start a conversation, uh, I will I will I kick people out of my connections if they don't talk to me on LinkedIn. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think knowing who your network is that is valuable to you is valuable, and it's difficult to go through your Rolodex if you don't know uh, who you can actually talk to. Uh, but I think fundamentally the best place is on Discord. I'm in a bunch of different Discord communities. Uh, I think we can get the link in my host profile or something like that. For uh, sure, yeah. And that's definitely going to be the best way. And I hap- happily talk about whatever you want to talk about uh, there. Cool. Right on. Um, my wife spends a lot of time on Facebook. Not a lot of time, but she's on Facebook. But she has a similar rule where she only allows 50 people as her Facebook friends. So if someone else wants to be her friend on Facebook and they're number 51, she's like, I got to kick someone else out before I can be friends with you because 50 is the limit. <laughs> so there's there's two really good points about that. Uh, first one, I'm doing the exact same thing on Facebook. Uh, I mean, if we think about Dunbar's number, uh, which is not a fixed number for the record, uh, 
it's just not possible to have that many close connections. So right. realistically, you should keep people in the loop that are, are relevant for you. Uh, it's way, way more effective and you'll be happier when you are focusing on your connections that matter. On LinkedIn, it's slightly different. I don't put a fixed number there because there is a advertisement effect for my brand. It's sort of like Twitter. The more people that hear me, the better. But I'm not right. on Facebook and I almost never use it um, other than if you know, I do need to talk to one of these uh, really close people. And I don't really use Facebook at all besides that. Yeah, agreed. Cool. All right. Well, Warren, I'm excited to have you here and I'm looking well, forward to many, many episodes with you. And um, I think this is going to be fun. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm excited. Right on. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And we will see y'all next week with another episode. And I'll stop the podcast as soon as I find my mouse. There we go. All right. See you, everyone. <laughs> Bye.